The anti-abortion movement is based in churches because those are the institutions where men and women have very rigid different roles. And because of that, it's totally permissible to just blatantly discriminate against women and say this is of God, that it's God's decision that women must be excluded at every decision-making level. Now, that's not okay anywhere else in the world, a corporation, a sports team, Congress, anywhere else in society, basically. But religions can just blatantly say, you are not allowed to have women leaders because that's what God wants. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. This is Ordinary Equality. I'm Jamia Wilson, writer, editor, and feminist activist. And I'm Kate Kelly human rights attorney and feminist activist. In case you're just tuning in, this season is all about abortion. And today, we're going to church. Yes, you heard that right, church. Typically, the fight over abortion access is described as having two clear and distinctive sides. You're either pro-choice or pro-life, secular or religious. It's impossible to wade into any conversation about reproductive rights without talking about religion. Media portrayals of arguments against abortion access often stem from religious sources. But it's not quite so simple. As we spoke about in episode one, we're both people of faith and hardcore believers in reproductive justice. And we're certainly not alone. I feel like sometimes in feminist circles or reproductive rights circles, people of faith don't really fit into either. Like you're you're kind of in this interstitial space. Mm-hmm. Where I love it. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> where you're fluent in religious language and you have loved ones and friends who are fully religious. And then you're also fluent in social justice and reproductive justice terms and ideas. And so you don't really fit into either camp. And in your mind, you also don't really demonize either type of people because you know and love both types of people. I remember feeling really excited when I had an opportunity to meet the chaplain at Planned Parenthood. And that was important to me to to find out that Planned Parenthood had a chaplain, that this was a part of the work. And I just feel like there needs to be more amplification of the fact that there are many religious people who've long been a part of the history, but that we can also be trusted in this movement. I've had some experiences in the past at 
conferences or sometimes in different organizing events where if people find out that I'm religious, there's suddenly a feeling of either shame or mistrust that somehow I might be swayed in the wrong direction against solidarity, despite my deeds, despite my connection to the work. So I think that it's really important for us to be speaking about our experiences because I do think that because of this history of the anti-choice hardliners most often using religion as the basis for their harassment of pregnant people, we need to do a lot of re-education so that people can understand that people of faith come in all sorts of multidimensional complexity and variety. And I think anti-choice people shouldn't have the monopoly on religious language, religious ideas, on spirituality. You know, they think using religious language or scripture is a way to trump any argument. But there are also people of faith on the other side. And if they say God hates abortion, I can say, well, I talked to her and she said she's okay with it. (laughs) I love it. I feel... It's so interesting you said that because I remember several times marching at the Supreme Court when I worked at Planned Parenthood and having the regulars who we would see on the other side of the protest come and start spouting biblical verses at me. A murderer will not see the kingdom of heaven. And I remember I just got really fed up with it one day and this man started spouting really nasty, appropriative, and racist interpretations of the Bible into my face. And then I decided to retort, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And to remind him that if he believes in the same Christian God that I read about, that he should also know that it wasn't his place to judge me because he's not God. And that judgment of me is sinful. That memory just stays painted in my mind because he was so shocked that this blasphemer and as was the words (laughs) that were brought back to me apostate would know the bible and he kept just shouting scripture at me and i would shout it back and i said you know keep going i went to vacation bible school and memorized a whole lot of this text and read my bible every day so you know we can continue with this or you can back up Do not mess with a Baptist woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So it's pretty clear that our lived experiences demonstrate that all of this has a lot of layers. While the arguments are typically framed in a way that pits religion against science, faith and abortion access have a complicated and diverse relationship. Religious authorities of different denominations have long been both enemies and advocates of reproductive freedom. This is important. Religion is the framework through which many of us learn about morality. Since the first pilgrims and Puritans arrived on the shores of what is now the United States, Christianity has been a part of the basis that has shaped our society's founding ideals and moral code. Here's Reverend Rebecca Peters, feminist social ethicist and professor of religious studies at Elon University. Regardless of whether you're Christian or not, our beliefs in this country have been about abortion have been shaped by Christianity. And people need to understand that because we're not going to be able to address the cultural problem until we acknowledge and recognize how much of that cultural problem was caused by bad interpretations of 
Christianity and, and ways in which that tradition, the misogynist and patriarchal aspects of that tradition have permeated how we think about reproduction, pregnancy, abortion, childbearing, parenting, right? All of these things. Once again, it comes back to power and the need to control women's bodies, especially during a time when both birth rates and abortion rates are at an all-time low. Because it's been accepted for so long, no one even thinks to question it. It's like, you know, fish in water. They don't know they're in water. We don't know we're even being shaped by this requirement that women justify their abortions. Abortion and any sort of attitudes around women's sexuality, pregnancy, childbearing, abortion, are fundamentally about the social control of women. And that until we recognize and understand that this is part of thousands of years of men controlling women's behavior, then we cannot understand what is happening today. Religious groups are also just really powerful. Here's Jamie Manson, who you heard from at the top of the show. She's the president of Catholics for Choice and also happens to be my girlfriend. Whenever I see on Twitter, people say, who cares about the Catholic Church? You know, nobody cares about it. It'll be dead in a hundred years. Um, no, it won't. And the Catholic Church isn't just powerful inside its own walls. It has enormous, harmful, really, power globally. It has its own presence at the UN. It has permanent observer status. It has diplomatic relations with every country in the world. And even more than that, one in six hospital beds belong to the Catholic Church. One in six hospital beds belongs to the Catholic Church in the world. Yes, they have incredible power. They run clinics, they run hospitals throughout the world, and very often in, in particularly poor areas, they are the only hospital or clinic for hundreds of miles. And so if the only hospital or clinic you have nearby is run by uh, the Catholic Church or a Catholic charity, and you need contraception, you're not gonna get it. If you need a tubal ligation because you can't have any more children, you're not gonna get it. If you need an abortion because your life is in danger, you're not gonna get it. And so it's profoundly powerful and just has this disproportionate undue influence over um, medical care globally that we really have to reckon with. These are life or death issues. Catholic doctrine has life or death consequences, and we really see that on a global scale in this very menacing way that it uses its doctrine to impact policy and to deny health care. Religious anti-abortion hardliners have gained power in our nation's highest courts. Well, Judge Amy Coney Barrett has been facing criticism from the Democrats over her Catholic faith since her confirmation. The nation meets Judge Kavanaugh and learns about the man beyond the bench. Kavanaugh is a good, strong Catholic, goes to church every Sunday, lives his faith, and because of that, Insler presumes Kavanaugh is pro-life and will live his beliefs as a Supreme Court justice. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court intervened and reversed a lower court ruling that had allowed women to obtain the abortion pill, mifepristone, remotely. This terrible mifepristone ruling is a bad sign for future abortion cases coming down the pike. These appointments have real consequences for people in need of accessible and comprehensive health care. I think one of the things that frightens me about this most recent case is they intervened when they didn't really have to because the ruling would have gone away. It was a temporary order for the pill during the pandemic. 
And they sort of just dismissed it without explaining why. All of this regulation around abortion hinges on what is and what is not, quote unquote, an undue burden. So if going out in a pandemic, violating quarantine, risking getting the virus yourself, putting other people at risk is not too high of a burden to just pick up an abortion pill, what's an undue burden? The standards is just so, so, so low that at a certain point, there isn't going to be anything that's too burdensome. And yet we also see public figures openly advocating for abortion access, including recently elected Reverend Raphael Warnock and President Joe Biden, who is a Catholic but a pro-choice Catholic. So let's talk about where the religious adversity and support for abortion comes from, politically and scripturally. There's really only one place to start. Let's talk about Catholicism. I asked Jamie when Catholicism's opposition to abortion began. It comes, it goes all the way back, believe it or not, to the fourth century to a very influential theologian named St. Augustine. He actually had some pretty nuanced opinions on abortion. He believed that insolment, which is similar to the concept of quickening, took place later in the pregnancy. He believed that a fetus took on human value or got a soul about 40 days into the pregnancy. It isn't until the late 16th century that Pope Sixtus V got worried about this scourge of widespread prostitution in Rome. And so he decrees both contraception and abortion homicide. Now, his prohibition was a failure, and it gets overturned three years later by his successor, Pope Gregory XIV, who said, you know what, that really wasn't in keeping with previous theological views. In the 1600s, the Pope's authority starts to get centralized and theologians start to lose their influence over moral theology. A few centuries later, in Catholic countries like France in the 1800s, birth rates start to decline. This caused a lot of worry. And interestingly, in 1869, around the same time that medical doctors in the US were starting their own anti-abortion crusade, Pope Pius IX drops the distinction between an insold and an uninsold fetus. And he declares for the first time that abortion at any stage is homicide and punishable by excommunication. Now that doesn't get formally codified in canon law until 1917. But a few years earlier in 1900, the Vatican makes this very radical departure from its tradition and says that abortion to save the life of a pregnant woman is never allowable. Even if her death is certain and imminent, it is still not allowable. Interestingly, uh, by the second half of the 20th century, the church starts to say that they had always considered abortion murder, that it was always completely banned, and the position was unchanged and unchangeable, which is a lie. This teaching has changed quite a bit over time. The Catholic Church also preaches something called the consistent ethic of life. Basically, the Vatican is anti-anything that it deems goes against nature, including abortion, the death penalty, euthanasia, and war. 
heterosexual intercourse was also the basis of an idea in Catholic theology called gender complementarity, which enforces what society now calls typical gender roles. What that means is that literally biology is destiny, that God created the male genitalia and the female genitalia in very specific ways to signal to us that men and women have very different roles should have very different roles in church and in society, right? So because men have a penis, that signifies to us that God wants men to lead and to take initiative. And the fact that women have vaginas, then they are a receptacle for men or a vessel for men. Women are meant to be receivers, nurturers, and servants. Catholics make up the historic backbone of the anti-choice movement, but their version of the gospel spread to an even louder group. Perhaps the most prominent anti-choicers come from white-led evangelical denominations. Evangelicals were not always allies in the anti-abortion fight. Actually, they historically were champions of women's rights and other social reforms. To understand what distinguishes evangelicals from other denominations of Christianity, I spoke with Randall Balmer professor of religion at Dartmouth College. He's the preeminent expert on the history of evangelicalism and the rise of the religious right. I grew up as an evangelical, so I'm very much rooted in that world. My father was a minister in the Evangelical Free Church for 40 years, and so I came to know that world. I went off to graduate school at Princeton in 1980 and actually studied to be a colonial historian. But in my first job at Columbia University in the late 1980s is when all of the uh, televangelist scandals began to break. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and the continuing saga of the PTL Club have taken on the irresistible dimensions of a national soap opera. It is, in its own way, as awful, as fascinating, and as impossible to ignore as a gigantic traffic accident. The news continues with the night team. Channel 5's Tim Herrera reports tonight, Swaggart is stepping down from his powerful TV ministry while the Assembly of God Church investigates him for having an affair with a prostitute. I have sinned against you, my Lord. And in the course of that, I became rather impatient, frankly, with the media portrayals of evangelicals and evangelicalism, because the media seemed to think that all evangelicals were the uh, either easily duped or the moral equivalent of Jim Baker and uh, Jimmy Swaggart. And having grown up in that world, I knew different. So I uh, devised this crazy idea to uh, travel around the country and write a kind of uh, historically informed travelogue about evangelicalism in America at the grassroots. So Pentecostals, fundamentalists, neo-evangelicals, eventually Hispanic evangelicals, African-American and so forth, to show the internal diversity of the movement. As Randall continued his research, he became particularly interested in the rise of the religious right, a movement that seems at odds with what he loved about evangelicals' history. 
way back into the 19th century, when evangelicals were very much concerned about those on the margins of society. They were involved in prison reform efforts. They were involved in, uh, in education. And they were also very much concerned about women's equality. So as I began to look more and more into this, I became uh, even more aware of what I considered the anomaly of the religious right. Uh, again, both uh, contradicting the teachings of Jesus, who was very clear about uh, a believer's responsibility to, to others, particularly those uh, on the margins. Also the discontinuity with what I considered to be a, a quite remarkable agenda of social reform in the 19th century. So it changed. Evangelicals went from being a force for progressive social reform to the core of the religious right. How did that happen? It really begins in the mid-1920s with the Scopes trial. Uh, the Scopes monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee, really persuaded many evangelicals that uh, the larger culture had become hostile to them and to their interests. Evangelicals uh, in, in the early decades of the, for most of the decades of the 20th century, actually, believed that Jesus was going to return at any moment. And when you think about that, what that did essentially was to absolve them from the task of social reform, making this world a better place. So whereas evangelicals in the 19th century were very much conscious of making the world a better place, which is what animated their social reform agenda, in the 20th century, for most of the 20th century, evangelicals had really um, given up on that. Uh, the world was, was hopeless. Uh, it, it was careening toward judgment. All we could do is try to bring as many people into the faith as we can, and then wait for Jesus to come back and take us out of this, this mess. We thought there was nothing to be gained from social activism, uh, nothing, certainly nothing to be gained from politics. Politics was dirty. It was Satan's realm. Through the middle decades of the 20th century, evangelicals were not engaged in politics, certainly not in any organized way. I mean, I knew many people growing up who didn't even, weren't even registered to vote. I mean, why bother? Uh, we had better things to do. That apolitical perspective started to shift in the 1970s. Many think that change stemmed from the 1973 ruling on Roe versus Wade. Professor Balmer said that's utter fiction. The short version is that a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher in the wake of Watergate decides to run for president of the United States. My name is Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president. And he promises never knowingly to lie to the American people. Well, I'm president. I'll never tell a lie. He also says he's a born-again Christian, so he's speaking the language of evangelicals. And I remember I was in college at the time, and I remember perking up, thinking, you've got to be kidding. Somebody who is being taken seriously as a presidential candidate talks about being born again. I mean, this just was outside of any sort of realm of plausibility for me at that time. And so what happens in the 76 election is that Jimmy Carter is able to lure a lot of evangelicals into the political process. Yet after Carter was elected president, many of the white evangelicals who had been supportive turned against him. In 1990, Professor Balmer attended a closed door conference featuring many of the figureheads on the religious right, leaders like Ralph Reed, Don Wildman, and Paul Weyrich. 
In the first session, Paul Weyrich, who, as I said, is the architect of the religious right, embarked on this impassioned soliloquy. He said, let's remember our movement, meaning the religious right, did not get started over opposition to abortion. Abortion had nothing to do with the origins of our political activism. Weyrick continued for some time on that point. At the next break in programming, Randall asked Weyrick for clarification. He wanted to make sure he understood exactly what Weyrick meant. He said, absolutely not. Abortion had nothing to do with it. He said, I have been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get evangelicals mobilized politically. He said, I tried everything. I tried the Equal Rights Amendment. I tried the pornography issue. I tried the school prayer issue. I tried abortion. Nothing got their interest until the issue of tax exemption for racially segregated institutions came up into the courts and eventually to the Internal Revenue Service. He said, that's what that got them going as a political movement. It's racism. And, you know, I, I have to say that, that I resisted that for a long time. Again, having grown up in this movement, I, I wanted to defend evangelicals against the charge of racism. But I have to say, the more I, I looked into it, and especially after the 2016 election, I, I simply can't, I, I can't deny it any longer. Uh, racism was at the formation of this movement. By the late 1970s, Weyrich and his fellow leaders of the religious right knew that they needed another issue beyond segregation to energize white grassroots supporters. What happens is that in the late 1970s, by the late 1970s, after Jerry Falwell and others had started to rage about the IRS trying to rescind their tax exemption, Weyrich begins to say, we need another issue. And so um, there are several suggestions made. And uh, what happens is that Weyrich decides to go all out in four Senate races in the midterm elections of 1978. New Hampshire, Iowa, and then two Senate seats in uh, Minnesota. One of them was for the unexpired term of, of Hubert Humphrey. And what happens in those races is that the final weekend of the campaign, anti-abortion people, Catholics, Roman Catholics, leafleted church parking lots on the abortion issue. And two days later, in an election with a very low turnout, all four favored Democratic nominees for Senate lost to anti-abortion Republicans. And again, I went through Weyrich's archives and it's like almost the, the, the papers begin to sizzle because he's, I finally got the issue that's going to work for me. So to summarize, abortion was not an issue and certainly not the issue for evangelicals until the very late 1970s when the religious right realized the issue's potential for galvanizing conservative political activists. Then it took a widespread misinformation campaign to rally the troops. We're going to come back to the religious right and its role in the long Southern strategy of turning the South red in a future episode. We will also talk in future episodes about the right's incredibly successful reframing of the abortion issue. There is a lot to cover there. But for now, we've talked about the strongest religious factions against abortion. Other religious traditions actually require abortion in some situations. 
that means abortion bans violate the constitutional rights to religious freedom and the stated separation of church and state. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, scholar in residence at the National Council of Jewish Women, spoke with me about that. The presumption that we should cut access to abortion is about a conversation about when life begins. And that conversation about when life begins is based in large, large part in Christian theology. But it's a Christian thing, right? Catholic doctrines about ensoulment or evangelical ideas, right? That's where it's coming from. And I, a Jew, do not want Christian theology to be deciding what kind of healthcare access I or any anyone in my community or anyone in the country gets, whether you're Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist or Muslim or whatever, we're not a theocracy. So that's point one. And point two is, again, like Judaism says, abortion is permitted and sometimes required. And so if your laws get in the way of me taking care of my body as my tradition tells me I can and should, then that's another First Amendment issue. Rabbi Danya explained that in Judaism, abortion is very much on the table and in some cases is considered a requirement. In the Torah, we have a case of an accidental miscarriage, and the Torah is pretty clear that the consequence if the pregnant person dies versus if the fetus dies are different. And the, the, it's just the, it's, if it's just the fetus, if it's just miscarriage, um, then it's monetary damages and it's not treated as manslaughter. And then you have the Mishnah, which is known as the Oral Torah. There it says if someone is in childbirth and might die, then you can literally go in, it's kind of graphic, but go in and cut up the fetus that the pregnant person's life takes precedence over the fetus's life. Like the pregnant person's is the life you save <laughs> and their life comes first. And the fetus isn't considered a, a person, doesn't have that status of personhood. And from there, people say, well, it's not just in, if your life is in danger, but if your health is in danger, and that includes mental health and... There needs to be a reason, but even a very thin reason is okay. And basically, like if you need to terminate a pregnancy, go terminate a pregnancy. And there are a lot of emotional reasons why that might be necessary. And that goes, you know, straight through to 21st century ultra-Orthodox rabbis saying it's permitted. Ironically, Christian denominations that say abortion is against God's will use those same verses in favor of their argument. The problem, according to Rabbi Danya, is they're basing that argument off of a translation error. Let's dive more deeply into the scripture. People who want to use the Bible as a way to limit people's rights, I strongly suggest you go and learn Hebrew. It actually says, thou shalt not murder, if you want to talk about that one, right? Murder, bad. Jewish lies like killing in self-defense, totally justified, actually uses abortion as one case where like you can have an abortion because the fetus is considered a pursuer, somebody who's trying to kill you. So in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, if you would all like to look it up in your Bibles at home, we have this case where two men fight and somebody accidentally pushes over or something, they knock over uh, somebody who's pregnant and there's a miscarriage. That's all pretty clear. And then it says that if it's just a miscarriage, you have to pay fines and you have to assess what the fine is that you're gonna pay for damages, okay. And then it says, if there is an asone, 
you have to actually, this is where you get eye for an eye, life for a life, right? You have to, it's treated as manslaughter. So what is a son? A son in Hebrew means like disaster. But the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, known as the Septuagint, they made a couple of really weird choices along the way. And this is the one with the big policy implication. They translated a son into a Greek word that means in the form. Disaster and in the form are really, really different. So then you have dudes like Augustine saying, oh, if the fetus is, you know, if it hasn't been ensouled, if it hasn't been formed yet, then you pay damages. If the fetus, if there's a miscarriage and the fetus has been formed, then it's manslaughter. Therefore, a fetus can have the status of personhood. Jewish law is like, no, 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 the pregnant person dies, not the fetus. Like in the sense that the other thing, a song means pregnant person dies. And somewhere along the way, the decision got made that it this bad translation move had all of these implications for how people think about that verse, which means what the Bible says about abortion. There are a myriad of translations into English that are really, really strange because they were riffing off of this Greek translation and not going straight from the Hebrew. Uh, and so then you have American Christians who are looking just at the English without the Hebrew and getting the wrong idea. Abortion access is not just important in the Jewish tradition. There are many groups of Christians that believe it's necessary, too. Reverend Katie Zay, CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, also cited scripture in her pro-abortion access position. For me, the central story is this gospel story and mark of a hemorrhaging woman who's been bleeding for over a decade and has gone to every medical institution who's taken all of her money and made her worse. And so she decides, I'm going to reach out and take what I need without asking for permission. And so she reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus's garment without his knowledge and is healed. This woman in the gospel is affirmed for taking what she needs, even without it being within the bounds of what was socially acceptable. And Jesus affirms her for doing that. And in her telling of that story, she heals herself, but she also heals the community of people who are around who are hearing it. So for me, I don't really engage in the debate. It really is about affirming that moment of everybody has within themselves of knowing this is what I need for my life and that that is always affirmed by the divine. Here's Reverend Rebecca Peters again. So I'm a PK, a preacher's kid. My dad was a Presbyterian minister, so I was raised in the church, uh, Presbyterian Church USA, so mainline Christianity, which is very significant in this conversation because mainline Christians are the most supportive of a pro-choice position. One pivotal conversation that I do remember, I was in college, I was home on break, you know, and I, and I, I was that same classic person that I think that I hear all the time. I support abortion, but I would never have one, right? So I remember I'm in this conversation with my mom and I said, you know, yeah, I mean, I support abortion, but I would never have one. And she just looked at me and she was like, why not? If you got pregnant when you were in college, I, you know, do you want to have a baby? You know, you shouldn't have a baby unless you want to have a baby. And so she completely reoriented my way of thinking around that you have to continue a pregnancy, that a pregnancy means you're having a child. You should, for her, as a very, very strong Christian Presbyterian, you should only have a child if you want to be a mother, if you want to, you know, have a family, that that is not something that you should do just because you're pregnant. 
For Dr. Kari Jackson, abortion was part of the family history she learned as a child. She knew that her grandmother died as she was attempting to terminate a pregnancy. I grew up knowing that. My mother was orphaned and, you know, it was the whole arc of her life. And it impacted how she parented and, you know, on and on. So I grew up with simple, very factual, that as her mother was trying to have an abortion and, and my mom did not know any of the particularities, they knew that it was somehow a kitchen, back door, back alley context. Again, I do not know any of the specifics of it, but the factual way in which it was framed was in this context of not having the kind of trained medical care that was needed for that kind of procedure that her mother died. There was no judgment about her mother's effort to terminate a pregnancy. That was never part of the story. It was that because it was not carried out by people who really knew what they were doing, that, that her mother died. And so as a young child, it always made abundant sense for me that if someone were to have a medical procedure of any type, that it would be done by someone who was medically trained, or at least supervised by someone who was medically trained, and who knew somebody who knew what they were doing. It needed to be a safe context. For Reverend Jackson, the story of her grandmother's passing helped form a deep understanding of the importance of making individual decisions. And that always has been a, a guide in my own life, that if someone's life circumstances, and I don't need to know what they are, but if by their own judgment about their life, if continuing a pregnancy is not in their best interest, such that they would take the risk. Now, having grown up in the Pentecostal Apostolic Church, I was taught there was one way to God. And there was a song even, one way, one way, one way to God. One way, one way, one way to God. And, and so that was very much the orientation in that context. And so then as a young person, when I met people who were not following that one path, and I could sense in my spirit that they were connected with God, even though it was not that one path, that began this questioning in me very early. Do people have the right to have more than one path? Does God in, insist that we come one way? And if we don't come that one way, everybody else is going to, as I grew up hearing, bust hell wide open. And there was something about that kind of teaching that did not align with what I was being taught about God, that God loves God's creation. You know, God looked and said, you know, very good. And, you know, so I was really, as a young person, looking at those inconsistencies. And so I said, okay, what am I going to go with? Am I going to go with the teaching that God loves God's own creation? Or am I going to go with the, the teaching of you've got to come this one way, the one way we tell you to come? Even many Catholics disagree with the church's official stance 
and belief that Catholic doctrine is pro-choice. Here's Jamie Manson again. Catholicism has very, very deep intellectual roots and gives us a lot of resources for ethical decision-making. It's one of the things I like about Catholicism. It's not a Bible-based religion. It, at its best, engages with intellectual traditions like philosophy, medicine, psychology. It, it, it takes its sources uh, of wisdom from many, many different places. And it has this great idea, again, it's rooted in the foundations of philosophy, of the primacy of conscience, that God created us as rational beings. And one of the gifts of God is individual conscience and that it should be uh, the final arbiter in all decision-making, moral decision-making. And so this, this is a pretty consistent belief. I mean, Benedict has said it, Pope Benedict, who's seen as so arch-conservative because he is, but this has been, you know, centuries of theologians have reaffirmed that. Again, because seeing it as that gift from God, that, that we ultimately, only we can make decisions for ourselves. So we've learned that far from being eternal or unchanging, or even the most important doctrine, the religious position on abortion has significantly shifted over time in every denomination, even Catholicism. And this fact isn't just an important theological point. Despite the fact that we have, in theory, a separation between church and state, the religious affiliations of our leaders, and particularly our judges, may impact reproductive freedom for all. With Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, six of nine justices on the Supreme Court are Catholic. So 23% of the U.S. population is Catholic, but almost 70% of the Supreme Court is. The very newly invented anti-abortion position that many Christian churches have taken has an impact on all of us, whether we're believers or not. I think, too, that people who are advocating their position because of their own narrative, their own lens of the world, don't think about what it would be like if they lived under somebody else's religious regimes and ideologies. I feel like my experience growing up in Saudi Arabia really taught me a lot about what it means to have religion so closely connected to the law, which is something that I don't think your average American thinks about. So I think too, it's important to let people know that we have societies that one can look at, that can show what happens when the dictates of one specific religion impact how policies are driven and how power is enacted. And we have a lot of that too, even though in name, it's not what we say is happening. So. I just think I wanted to share that because I think it's important and it's really taught me to think about how I feel about my religion, but also the limits of that and why it's important for me to protect other people's religious freedom. So we've covered a lot today, but religious authorities have done more than debate the theology of reproductive freedom. Clergy have helped people in need find safe abortion access for decades. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about how both religious and secular groups worked to provide safe abortion access when it was illegal. We'll talk about the historic underground networks and the potential necessity for these types of networks to be reborn. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan with editorial support from Janice Formicella. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Carmen Borca Carrillo.
we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll enjoy. If you love food, I want to recommend to you a show from Transmitter Media called Rebel Eaters Club. This body positive and unapologetically food positive show is about breaking up with diet culture. Host Virgie Tovar talks to amazing rebel eaters who will change the way you think about food and your body. Their second season just launched and features great conversations with guests like Francis Lamb from The Splendid Table, as well as fascinating stories about why we eat what we eat. Listen now in your favorite podcast app or at rebeleatersclub.com.